Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Welcome back to Awareness to Action. I'm so happy to welcome Stephen Hill to the show today. Stephen is the founder of Speak Sobriety and a renowned national speaker on substance use prevention and mental health awareness. Stephen is also an attorney, recovery coach, and best-selling author of A Journey to Recovery, Speak Sobriety. Stephen has presented at over 300 schools, drug-free community coalitions, alliances, and organizations across the country, sharing his cautionary tale of addiction to recovery and beyond. If you're a local listener, you may already be familiar with Stephen from the time he spent in Page County earlier this year. If not, I'm excited to introduce you to his story and his perspective on what it means to engage in personal growth and community change, and to foster humility and resilience along the way. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, let's start with you telling our listeners a little bit about your story and the work that you do. Yes. So I was just actually in Page County speaking for the uh, Page County uh, coalition that they have over there with uh, Megan Gordon and Carrie Campbell had brought me out to share my personal story about my struggles with substance use and journey to recovery with a focus on prevention. So I've been in recovery for a little over nine years. And before I got into recovery, I struggled with a substance use disorder for just over a decade, starting with nicotine, marijuana, and alcohol my freshman year of high school. And looking back on it, just to go a little bit earlier than that, I had uh, made the junior varsity lacrosse team as an eighth grader. So I was actually a middle school student playing a high school sport. So I was around older kids, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors when I was just in eighth grade. And that's really where I was introduced to the concept of drug and alcohol use. I heard about people talking about parties, drinking, smoking, and although I didn't use anything when I was in middle school, I didn't make it two days in high school before my first use. I got invited to a party that school started on a Wednesday, that first Friday night. I got invited to a party by some of my older teammates. That's where I tried nicotine, smoked a cigarette, drank my my first uh, sip of alcohol that night, and a few months later, tried marijuana for my first time. And And I made it through my whole freshman year without any real serious negative consequences. And looking back on it, I kind of wish that things got out of control or or got bad a little bit quicker, because what I thought to myself was one of two things. One, that these people that were telling me about the dangers of drugs and alcohol were lying to me, or that this just didn't apply to me. But then slowly and then quickly, things started to change, started failing classes, ineligible to play sports my behavior started to change. I started hanging out with a different group of friends. Our only purpose of hanging out with each other was to use drugs. I became secretive, dishonest. And then all of a sudden I became a different person and progressed to harder drugs, Xanax, cocaine, and then eventually opioid painkillers. I barely graduated high school. I was suspended multiple times. I was kicked off sports teams. I failed out of numerous colleges, was in and out of numerous treatment programs, was arrested multiple times. And at 24 years old, after going through all of this, things were worse than ever. 
I had felony cases in two different states. I had no job. I had no money. I had no career, no skill. All my friends were gone. My family wanted nothing to do with me. And I had a deadly opioid addiction that was going on on a daily basis. And, and I pretty much gave up all hope. For me, I don't, I'm not a zero tolerance speaker. I'm not going to tell everybody that their experience drugs and alcohol is always going to be bad. I don't think people get addicted to something that always made them feel bad, right? I, I just don't think that's realistic. The problem is for, for some people, myself included, the, the fun or the good feeling does not last. And it was around 22 years old when I saw my friends who took the traditional path were graduating college. Some of them were going to graduate school. Some of them were getting good jobs. And, and I had nothing going for me where I really wanted to stop but the mental obsession to use and the physical allergy, the, the withdrawals from stopping were just so strong that I did not have the ability to do it on my own. And so it wasn't until I went into a long-term, year-long treatment program that I was finally able to get it. It took around five or six months before I woke up and the first thing on my mind was drugs. I woke up with that thought process. It was just right on the top of my head every single time I woke up. Do I have drugs? Okay, if not, how am I going to get them? Always had that thought. And at the beginning of my recovery, when I, I started doing these things, I'm, I'm going to counselors, I'm going to support groups, I'm learning how to breathe and, and meditate, and I have to go to AA, NA, make sober phone calls, stay away from these people, these places, these things. I just, I felt like this was exhausting. I felt like for the rest of my life, everything that I have to do is just simply not to use drugs and not to ruin my life. And, and I, I kind of got discouraged when I realized like, okay, I think I can do this, but is this really all there is? It's just me having to do all these things on a daily basis just to not pick up a drink or a drug. And eventually my mindset on it started to change. At first, it was the absence of a negative. And, and that is the beginning of my recovery. But then it became building a life that was worth staying sober for, creating a life that was worth me not picking up that drink and drug. And it became more of a positive thing. And I, I switched my whole outlook on, on the things that I do for my health and wellness. Instead of looking at it as a chore or something that I just, I have to do, I, I look at it now as something I choose to do something I want to do. And once I was able to switch my mindset and my thinking on, on some of these things that I do to take care of myself and my sobriety, it became a lot easier to do. Because for a long period of time, it, it just seemed like it was so difficult. And it was at the beginning. It was. It really was. I just, I, at first, I couldn't even do it. I, I couldn't stay sober for 12 hours. I remember, like, I, I couldn't even stay sober for 12 hours at, at the beginning. And and then you go to the withdrawals and you have all these different scenarios happening, arrested, treatment, kicked out of the house, failing out of school, losing jobs. And none of it was enough to make me stop. And even when I would try and stop, it was just, it was so hard to do it. And, and being in that treatment program, that safe environment is really what got me over that hump. So I had five or six months where I could even understand the concept of recovery. And then it took me an extra another extra year, I'd say probably around 18 months before I really started to feel confident in my recovery. It, it, it took, it takes a very long time. And, 
And then I started building a life for myself. I went back to college. I worked at a treatment program for a while. I decided to go to John Jay College of Criminal Justice, ended up getting into Brooklyn Law School, became an attorney. Uh, I published a book called The Journey to Recovery. And in 2016, I, I officially started this movement called Speak Sobriety, uh, which is you know, now we're talking about it as the sober impact, right? I wanted to share my story of recovery with people in a way that was really never presented to me. And I use a storytelling approach, right? I, I pick topics relevant to substance use, to mental health, to prevention, and I deliver them in a way as relates to my own personal story. I don't expect people to remember every, every single word I say, but from what I've been told from the almost 400 schools and coalitions I've been able to speak for, they do remember how I made them feel. And I get people to think think about their own actions, think about how their actions are affecting other people. And it's been one of the greatest gifts of my recovery uh, to be able to go around and, and speak and, and try and prevent people from, you know, it's not just don't do what I do, it's don't do what I did, you know, and, and now do what I do. You know, cause now I'm, I'm not just talking the talk, I'm, I'm walking the walk as well in this, in this life of recovery. I appreciate what you just said about the people you speak to remembering how you made them feel. And I've heard you say in a, in a different uh, conversation you had that love is what keeps you from using. Like love is a huge part of your recovery. I would love for you to speak to that. Yeah, so for a long time, and I think this was especially true in prevention work, we tried to scare people straight, right? DARE was a, was a big proponent for, for fear-based education, you can call it. And, and what I say to, if I do like professional development, I speak to teachers, I, I ask them, do you scare your students smart? Is, is that your approach for teaching someone? But for some reason, when it comes to drug and alcohol prevention, we lose this concept of education and try and go straight to fear. And to me, it's, it's not about fear. Yes, a little bit of fear is good. I, I get that. There should be a little bit of fear there. This is mostly about education. This is mostly about trying to connect with people on a personal, on an emotional level. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. So today, it's, it, it's the opposite of, of fear that keeps me sober. It's, it's the love. It's the love that's in my life today that I have with my family, with my friends, with my wife, my, my child now. I just, my, just, I just became a father about a month ago. And I have all these great things because of, of love and people who are willing to give me a second chance, not send me to prison and learn the hard way, right? It's, it's a shift in thinking that I'm trying to get people to do instead of just being instant reaction, try and take a step back and think, you know, how can we help this person? Not how can we punish them? How can we instill fear in them? How can we help this person? How can we show this person some love to get them the help they need? First of all, congrats on becoming a father. Thank Congratulations. You. Yeah, it's, been, it's actually one month to the day. April 2nd was her, uh, wow. her was when she was born. So it's, um, it's going really well. Good. Um, something that stuck out to me that you said earlier was when you were in high school, when you were a freshman, before you were facing any kinds of consequences, you had the feeling that people were either lying to you or the consequences that you're hearing about just didn't apply to you. So I can see an easy connection between 
you know, when you're speaking to young people now, being honest with them and, and building that trust in that love, showing them that you're not lying to them. How do you balance the love with the, Hey, this does apply to you. Like this could happen to you. Yeah. So I I do it by just conceding to some of their arguments. I do it by also letting them know that not every single person is going to end up addicted in prison or dead. Right. I always say it's not necessarily going to go there. It may be a problem that's not as bad and maybe you're okay with that, but the choice is yours. Right. And this goes for parents too. You got to decide what do you really want from your life? If you're a parent, what message are you sending to kids? If you're a kid, what do you want from your life? Are you willing to take the risk of ending up the way that I did or even worse and then make it bigger? Ask them how their actions are influencing other people, right? You may not be the one who develops the problem. You may be someone who can drink socially and you do it every once in a while and you become an adult, you go on, you get a job, you start a family and it doesn't become a problem, but you might be influencing someone who does end up having that problem. And I deal with this with parents all the time when you, when you talk about social hosts and, and parties, things like that, where parents think, okay, I would rather my kids be doing it here, but you start throwing a party, you have no idea who's coming to your house. Some of these kids are just starting out with their substance use disorder. You're giving them a safe place to start a very dangerous thing. And to me, that's, that's a big part of the problem. So instead of telling them, don't do drugs, drugs are bad, just say no, I show them through my story how this can unfold. And I just share it in a way where it's on their level because all the things that I experience, they are experiencing or are about to experience. And so by just showing them through a a real story, that's how I've been able to connect with not just students, with with parents and, and teachers. I've given this presentation to so many different audiences because it's a story. This is, this is what really happened. And it's, it's relevant to what's going on today. I mean, you know, I don't sugarcoat it. Things are very bad. Every time the CDC comes out with new numbers, the overdoses are going up and up. And that's a lot of that has to do with fentanyl for sure. So in, in keeping with this concept of love informing this work, um, as an attorney, you advocate for treatment over incarceration. Um, something that I also care about. Can you talk about what that looks like in practice? Yeah. So I've, I've only been an attorney for a short period of time. And because of all the speaking I've been doing, I have not been able to do a lot of direct legal work, but I have spoken on numerous panels uh, with law enforcement and with community coalitions. And I, again, I share my story and shows you how the criminal justice system actually worked for me, right? I was kind of mandated into treatment, not into jail or prison. And that's how I was able to recover. Prison is not an environment. The American prison system is not an environment conducive to recovery, to health and wellness. And and what I see happening is, okay, let's say you have a nonviolent drug offender or nonviolent alcohol offender, someone who gets a DWI, and you send this person to prison for an extended period of time, they come out and who knows what went on in that prison. A lot of trauma goes on there and people come out worse than they were before. Now they got to check that box on the felony, right? Filling out a college application, a job application. And everywhere you turn, you're getting denied on top of the fact that now you have 
this traumatic experience, you had to change your whole way of thinking and being. I mean, every prison is different, but some of them are really bad places to live in. And you can't act like a normal human being in a prison. You're like a caged animal. And that's how you, your back's up against the wall every day. And then you want to release that person into the public and expect them to be a law-abiding citizen who can't get a job, who can't go to school. I mean, if you're a convicted felon, in some cases, you can't even take out student loans. And so all of this fear and hate, all it does is, is cause more problems. And I even say to people, don't even think about it, about the person who's, who's offending. Think about it from a community standpoint. Do you want this person to get better or do you want them to get worse? Because if they get worse, it's not just a danger to themselves, the danger to the whole community. So everybody wins when somebody gets the help that they need. So that's really what I'm trying to do. It's what motivated me to get my law degree. I have been able to, to work on some cases, especially during my internships. Uh, I've actually worked on some unique stuff since I've been an attorney. What's very interesting is one of the first cases I worked on, I was hired by parents to advocate for their kid to go to jail, which was the complete opposite of what I wanted to do. And it just shows you how every situation is different. This was a kid who kept getting court mandated to treatment, but he would wait a day or two and then he would leave. And in the time that he would leave and a warrant would be issued, he overdosed three times. And so our argument was right now, the safest place for him actually is jail because court mandated just means you have to be there. And if you leave, nobody's going to stop you. But then they call the, the police, the police go to the court, a warrant gets issued, but that doesn't happen in, in one day. Sometimes it takes weeks and sometimes it takes a while to find the person and pick them back up. And in that time, this person had such a severe substance use disorder, they just kept overdosing. And so the argument was to try and keep them in jail, isolated in a, in a place where maybe he could, his brain could heal for just a short period of time by just simply not putting a substance into their body. So it's, you know, you, you go to law school with, with one intention, then you end up having to do something else. And, you know, it's, and, and again, you know, so, some of the legal work that I'm gonna have to do, like even one of the things I did when I worked as a legal intern was a DWI case and I ended up just getting the person off on a technicality. So sometimes even if I know that the best, let's say the prosecution's offering drug court or an alternative to incarceration rehab program, and I know this is the best thing for the person, but I also see in the police report that there was no probable cause for the car stop or the arrest. I unfortunately have a legal obligation to get that person off and to get the charge dismissed, knowing that court mandated treatment is probably the best thing for them as a human being, but legally, I'm not allowed to do that. I can, of course, talk with them personal on a personal level after the fact, but sometimes you could say, I guess, my motivation for getting my law degree, it's a little bit different than you know, real life scenarios. But again, I, I still get to use it in ways that, uh, that I never thought I would. You know, I understand the, the whole criminal justice process a lot better. I understand the classroom to the prison pipeline. I learned a lot about alternatives to incarceration. I try and carry that over to schools with in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, expulsions, 
removal from school-related sports teams, uh, things like that, trying to, instead of just punishing people and removing these protective factors, trying to add more to get this person the help that they need. Because it really is, it, it feels it feels more important to me, and I do not have a law degree or anything close to it, to be adding those protective factors, to be adding in more supports and building up more and more rather than taking away. Yeah, and, and that's what happened to me. So when I was 16 years old, I was given 10 days. I, I got kicked off my hockey team. Uh, I had been given, I was suspended. I was given a warning and then I ended up uh, coming back and, and I wasn't allowed to play at first. They were putting me on the last line. I got in a big argument with my coach and, and I was kicked off the team. And then after I found out I was kicked off the team, I cursed them off and I was given 10 days out of school suspension. So you just remove sports and school from my life at 16 years old. And you think I'm going to get better or worse? Right. So I, I got significantly worse. And that's what I try and show people. So yes, there have to be consequences. Right. And, and some things could be volunteering, missing the game, but you still got to suit up, stand on the sidelines and cheer your team on with a good attitude. Uh, you know, get again, get your grades up, volunteer, run extra sprints. I, I don't care what it is. Try and add more positive things in this person's life instead of just taking them away. Mandatory counseling whatever it is, not just, all right, let's just remove sports, remove school. And what that that's, you think that person's going to magically get better. I mean, you know, at least for me, I had a, a loving and supportive family. I, I didn't have drug and alcohol use going on in the home. Sometimes school is the safest place for students. And I can tell you in, in, in the schools I spoke at in Page County, there's, there's a lot of kids that were going home to that every day. At every single school I spoke at, I had students come up to me afterwards and talk about that, about how they go home and, and their parents are the ones who are addicted. And so you take a kid who's got a rough family life and they come to school and they're acting out or they're using drugs and you want to suspend them? No. I, the most heartbreaking thing I've, I've heard since I've been a speaker was at a school in Washington State. And I had this seventh grade girl come up to me afterwards and she said, Mr. Hill, my mom is addicted to heroin and my dad is in prison. My mom's new boyfriend is a meth dealer and he's really angry and gets really loud and he screams at me. And when he screams at me, I get really bad anxiety and I hit my jewel to help my anxiety. And I just got suspended for jeweling. Now I'm back. How do I stop jeweling, Mr. Hill? Right? Like, where do we even begin? with something like that. You're talking about a seventh grader. I mean, a junior or a senior, I can talk about the light at the end of the tunnel. I can talk about going to college, taking out student loans, getting a job, starting your own life. But with a seventh grader, you got to talk to them like they're an adult in seventh grade and, and tell them to start thinking about these things and trying to utilize resources, which we know not every community has the same resources and trying to find friends and family, get involved in things, counseling. I mean, but then what about in the summers when a lot of the services are not offered, right? It's, it's really, really difficult. And so you got to try and help that kid. Don't punish them. I think it's exciting to see how different communities are starting to catch on to this knowledge that the more 
the merrier essentially in terms of resources and programming and you know seeing communities that extend programs into the summer and and kind of make a bridge so that all the good that the kids are receiving doesn't stop from June to September as it does in a lot of places because that's that's a lot of time for someone who counts on their school programming as the place where they have safe adults in their life and they have care and you know more sets of eyes checking in on them. So what was really cool in Page County is Megan and Carrie actually asked me to go over to their rec center. And they have this rec center and they have these two amazing guys, this guy Damon and, and Ryan, and two young guys, uh, Damon's in recovery and just doing a lot of really cool work over there, working with some at-risk kids. They they created like a gym in the basement. They do mentoring. They do physical activity, weightlifting, all this, all this different stuff. And and to me, that's what it's all about, you know, being able to provide this safe place. And uh, they had, you know, helping kids with homework, all, all this different stuff. And, and we need more of that. We need kids to be able to go to a place like that. And I got to go over there and see them in action. And they were doing, it was really cool to, to watch on, on such a personal level. I mean, they had, they had kids as young as like five years old up to, up to seniors, right? All, all in the same place. And it's even if you can just help one kid. You can help one kid. And that's why I, I called this, you know, when I started speaking uh, in, in February, I went on this, I have this speaking tour that I'm currently on right now called Save One Life. And, and every time I speak, I go in with the intention of just saving one life. My hope is, of course, I can save more, but it's worth it if I could save one. And you think about it, you change the trajectory of one person's life and how that's going to affect so many other people along the way. So people say, you know, does it, does it ever get exhausting? Or you see the numbers and, and all the mental health problems and the overdoses. And yeah, it, it does sometimes. And the, the emails, the phone calls I get, the amount of people I know who have overdosed, the times when the family does everything right and the kid still dies. Right. That's what's scary about this is, is people think that if you do X, Y and Z, then you are you have a guaranteed result. And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Yes, there are things you can do to prevent it. There are things you can do to in increase your chances of recovery if you get stuck in it. But there's no guarantees. And with fentanyl today, that's the biggest game changer is that it's just so much more dangerous now to use drugs because of fentanyl. And you're just seeing people overdose and die at, at an alarming rate. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because your work is inextricable from who you are and the life you've lived. So how do you balance, you know, sharing your story in such public ways in a, in a time that is really disheartening in a lot of ways when, when you look at the numbers and then, you know, coming home and you're still living that story because it's who you are. Yeah, it's, it's not my, my work and my personal life are not as removed as some other people's might be uh, because this is all very personal to me. And it's something that I believe in. It's something I'm really passionate about. I mean, everything, I, I don't work for a company. I work for my company. I mean, everything I do is, was created from my own addiction and now my, my own recovery. 
And yeah, sometimes I do take my work a little bit too personally and my wife will call me out on it. And sometimes I'll have to put my phone down and put my computer, my back, my MacBook away and, and just be a regular person. And, and I try sometimes to, uh, to not talk about this all the time. I try to have a life where this is not the topic of conversation but a lot of times when I, when I hang out with people, they, they want to know about it. People want to ask questions. They're, they're interested because it's so, such a huge problem and so relevant. And so, yeah, it, it comes with the territory. There's certainly pros and cons to it, but I would say there's definitely a lot more pros than cons to, to what I, I am doing. And, and I'm okay with it. You know, I have my own program that I work for my own recovery. Uh, yes, this is definitely a part of it. But there is other things I do in terms of going to support groups and counseling and my own sober network that I have that's separate from the work that I do. That's really just about my own recovery. And I had to keep it that way because I can't be doing this work if I'm not helping myself first. Right. And I would think that that was selfish, but it's, it's really not because if you're not taking care of yourself first, you can't take care of anybody else. So I had to make sure that I kept that in check and didn't get an ego and, and thought that I am recovered. It's called recovery for a reason, right? It's, it's a lifelong thing. Absolutely. I think that probably more than any other topic on this show, people mention self-care. This whole podcast is, is talking with people like yourself who are doing good work in their communities and you can't do it if you're not looking out for yourself and putting your own oxygen mask on first before you help other people. That's a perfect example about with the, with the airplane, right? They always say this, it's exactly right. And I think about that all the time. It's the perfect example. I wouldn't be able to do it if I don't have any oxygen in my own lungs, right? So that's what it's all about. And, and sometimes I got to take a pause. Uh, I can't save the world. The amount of emails, phone calls, direct messages on social media that I get. I mean, yeah, sometimes it might take me a day or so to respond to all of them. I, I try and put the students first. When I, when I get after an assembly, it's a guarantee I'm going to get a message from a student. Uh, at Page County, I got a lot, upwards of 20 different students uh, contacted me and, and you try and, and address them as best you can. Uh, but one thing I, I got to do it in Page County was breakout sessions. So I got to do my assembly presentation where I share my story. We do a formal Q&A. But then the following days, I was back at the school the whole day uh, meeting with students in smaller groups. And that's where you get to address some of those questions and concerns on a more personal level. And that was something that I, I really like to do. I'm curious about the process. You are an author of a best-selling book, which you mentioned before, which for everyone listening is titled Journey to Recovery Speak Sobriety. I'm curious what the process was of writing the book and what the experience has been like of putting your story into the world in written form, because I have to think that's very different than getting up on a stage and sharing it while you're looking at the faces and getting reaction. Yes, it was, it's a very different process and it's much more thorough and personal than what I share in a keynote presentation. Obviously, I can only fit so much in a keynote presentation, 
with the book, I went into much uh, deeper detail. And the way it all came about is in 2016, uh, June of 2016 is when I officially started Speak Sobriety. So I had spoken at a few schools or conferences before, but 2016 is when I officially started it. And that summer, my youngest brother was transferring colleges and he wanted to get some help with writing a college essay. So there was this guy, Mark Holberman, who was actually my old SAT tutor. He had tutored my two younger brothers as well. And he does a lot of stuff for SATs, ACT, and, and also helps with the college application process. So my youngest brother goes and, and meets with Mark and Mark had remembered me. He remembered I showed up to his session under the influence, didn't take it seriously, and just heard stories over the years with how bad things were for me. So he cautiously asked my younger brother, how's everyone doing in the family? And, and my brother told him what I was doing and that I had just started speaking and I was in recovery and, and I was doing all these things. And so Mark called me and I was at this time, I was applying to law schools. And so I, I needed a, a law school admissions test tutor. And so I asked him, uh, do you know anyone who does this? And he actually did have somebody. And he said, but I also want to talk to you about a whole lot of other things. And so we met up and we talked for a while and he had handed me his book and it was uh, called uh, Overcoming Adversity. You know, it's finding strength in your struggles, I believe is the title. And, and he talked about living with epilepsy, a seizure disorder, and how he didn't tell a lot of people about it for most of his life. He was also a public school, high school English teacher, and he didn't want to be perceived as weak or potentially a liability that he could have a seizure in class. And so he kept it a secret for a long period of time and then ended up writing his own book about living with this disease. And so he came to see me speak at my old high school, Suffern High School in November of 2016. And he came up to me afterwards and he was like beyond moved and said, we have to write a book. I will help you. And I remember I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. And then the next morning he called me up and he was like, all right, when do you want to start writing your book? And I was like, listen, Mark, it's, I really appreciate the offer. That sounds great, but I, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. He's like, all right, well, let me know when you're ready. I believe it was either the, the next day or at most two days later, he called me up again and said, all right, so when are you ready to start writing your book? So I think I just met with him because I, I had known that he was going to keep asking me. Uh, and so now I'm thinking about it. I got my timeline messed up for a second here. This is when he showed me his book. Right. This is when I went over to see him and he showed me his book at this point where after he had seen me speak and he showed me his book and I saw the whole thing. And I think that's the reason why I trusted him with the, the whole process of, of doing this. And because he was a high school English teacher, he was an SAT tutor. Uh, he had his own struggles and because he was asking me to do it. So Basically, I had to get out, I had to get out so much paperwork. I had to create like a timeline of, of life events 
and had to get out all this different paperwork and pictures and report cards and criminal records and treatment programs, just making sure that my timeline is 100% accurate. So that alone took months just to get that paperwork together to try and make sure I knew exactly you know, what was happening when. And so we made a timeline at first and then I just started writing chapter by chapter. And basically I would write it uh, free. I would write it, you know, I did it on my computer, but I would write it without really worrying so much about grammar or any of that type of stuff. I would just write it as it came to my mind. And then we would read it together and he would help me uh, clean it up a little bit. And so that's, so that's how we work together with it is I wrote it. Uh, obviously only I could write it because it's, it's my story. And then he would read it with me and edit it so that it was you know, grammatically correct. And that, so it flowed a little bit better. And we published a book uh, in May of 2017 and the first month it was the number one new release on Amazon in drug dependency. So it went uh, really well. A lot of people bought the book because of uh, social media and a couple of news media outlets picked it up. I was on a few podcasts and radio shows right afterwards. And it's probably the main reason why I'm married today. My, my wife uh, picked it up. She's someone I went to high school with. She was a nurse in Brooklyn. I was a student at Brooklyn Law School and she had bought the book, read it. We ended up meeting up and that's where we, uh, where we started dating was because of this. So that was, uh, it was a very therapeutic, but also exhausting process. One thing I was told to do and was to try and listen to music from the time from when you were, when you're writing the book and, and it worked. I could tell you, like I used to listen to like Dave Matthews band and, and Guster, which is like what reminded me of, of high school a lot. And I would listen to that while I was writing the book. And it's like, I can almost like feel the memories, um, you know, for the most part with opioids and marijuana, which were my two drugs of choice, I remember the madness. I remember everything that went on. When I, when I used alcohol and Xanax, which was not very often, I would black out and I didn't really remember. And I, all I remember would be like the aftermath. Uh, but for the most part, I remembered a lot of what went on and you could say at some points it's you wish you can forget, but if I had forgot everything that happened, then I would not be able to have wrote that book. I wouldn't be able to, to speak on this. And so I, I do remember it and, and have found a way to take that negative experience and turn into something positive. To me, that's what resilience is all about is taking what most people look at as strictly a negative experience and looking at it in a different light and turning it into something positive. So two things strike me as being very special from what you just shared. The first is how often the best things or the, or the most meaningful experiences in our lives are brought to us in the form of experiences that feel daunting or something we're unsure of, you know, the idea of, of, writing a book coming to you and then being a huge part of the work you do now and brought you the love of your life. I mean, that's huge and amazing. Uh, it, it's so it's, it's a principal said it to me. Uh, her name was, uh, her name is Carissa Brzezinski. She was, she is, I believe still the principal 
at a high school, uh, Elwood John Glenn High School in Long Island, New York. And after I spoke, this was the second time she brought me in. She brought me in the first year as a speaker and then brought me in. She was actually one of the last schools I spoke at right before the pandemic hit. Uh, and I got to spend the entire day with her. She had me speak in, the, in an assembly in the morning. Then I went and spent the entire day with her in the office. It was like, the, it was Valentine's day. It was a Friday. It was the day before break. So she knew I was coming back. So she cleared her schedule and got to just sit down and talk prevention and all the different things I'm doing, ask me questions. And that's where I got the line. She said to me, you found a way to take your mess and you turned it into a message. And I use that now every time I speak, it just, it, it just, it helped me really switch my thinking on a lot of different things. I would say the most powerful work I do today is when my programs are sponsored by Memorial Foundations. So I have worked with four and now it's about to be a fifth uh, Memorial Foundation. And that's families who have lost either a brother or a son to a drug overdose and now started foundations uh, in honor of their loved one. And to me, that's like the ultimate definition of resilience. You've found a way to take the most horrific thing and you're turning it into something positive. And I have a relationship with these, some of these families in, in ways I never would have uh, before. I mean, it's just, just, just two weeks ago, I was speaking for uh, two different memorial foundations in Westfield, New Jersey. And these two sisters both started this movement in honor of their brothers and their, their brothers actually overdosed. One was a while ago, about 10, 11 years ago. And the other one was pretty recent. And they actually ended up being from the same town and they formed this friendship because of it, right? They, they wouldn't be friends today if their brothers had not overdosed. Of course, they would, uh, both of them, I'm sure, would trade their friendship to have their brothers back, but uh, it's just not the way that life works. And so they, they have found a way to make their brother's deaths meaningful in a positive way that I can't even put words to. And I have so much respect for people who can go to that level of vulnerability. It's just, to me, it's, it's you know, people, people say it to me all the time when I speak to like, they, they commend me on my vulnerability and my my willingness to share, not just the highlights, the, the, the lows of the low, but to me, what, what they do is, is an, on an even higher level that I, I can't even know words for. Well, and, and those two women forming a friendship and, you know, someone you knew from when you were younger, supporting you and guiding you as you wrote this book, like those things speak to the power of accompaniment. Like we do better in hard times when we have people who understand our experiences or who have more knowledge than us or have walked the path before us to be with us in that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Everybody wants to be a part of, right? Everyone just wants to be a part of a community. We wanna feel okay, we wanna be accepted, we wanna make connections with people. That's just, that's who we are as human beings. And the more you're able to do that, the better things will be for, for everyone in general, right? Exclusion is a terrible thing. Nobody likes to be excluded. So just trying to include people in any way, shape, or form that you can will help everyone. And, and learning from one another, keeping an open mind, 
all of those things have really shaped me into the man I am today. And one thing that I learned in, in recovery that I, I really try and do is to keep my ego out of things and, and to really stay humble, to remain teachable, and you will be better because of it in a lot of different ways. So Stephen, I wanna close this out by asking you the question we asked everyone. What does the process of awareness to action mean to you? So the first thing that, that I have to do is, is talk, right? That's what I try and do. I try and bring awareness to these different situations, to uh, awareness to the drug epidemic, to the mental health crisis, to my story and how it unfolded, how it could have been prevented, how things could have been different. And then after you hear a story like that, my hope is, is that you will change your action. You will change the way that you live your life, or you will change the way you think about somebody else, right? If you, if you can ask one thing I really want to do, it's to knock out stigma, the stigma attached to addiction and to substance use and to mental health. And so if you could just knock out some stigma, we're making the world a better place. Your stigma contributes to people's downfall and their inability to recover and seek help. So if anything, we can just knock down some of that stigma by through the awareness of speaking and then hopefully the action will follow. That's what it means to me. Well, I appreciate your perspective. I appreciate your time. Um, thank you for sharing your story with us and for sharing it with so many. I think the work you're doing is, is crucial, especially in your conversations with young people in bringing awareness to this in this time of the opioid epidemic in the state that it's in. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for, for inviting me on. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Stephen for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can catch the rest of season two, which will be wrapping up in June.